left off in Nehemiah chapter 7. Now when the wall was built and I'd set up the doors and the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites were appointed, I put my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the fortress, in charge of Jerusalem, for he was a faithful man and feared God above many. I said to them, Don't let the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they stand guard, let them shut the doors, and you bar them and appoint watches of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, everyone in his watch, with everyone near his house. Now the city was wide and large, but the people were few therein, and the houses were not built. My God put into my heart to gather together the nobles and the rulers and the people that he might be listed. By genealogy, I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first, and I found this written in it. These are the children of the province who went up out of the captivity of those who had been carried away, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away, and returned to Jerusalem and to Judah, everyone to his city, who came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Rehemiah, Nahamani, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispereth, Bigvi, Nehum, Beana. The number of the men of the people of Israel, the children of Parash, 2,172, the children of Shephatiah, 372, the children of Ara, 652, the children of Pahath Moab, of the children of Jeshua and Joab, 2,818, the children of Elam, 1,254, the children of Zatu, 845, the children of Zakai, 760, the children of Binui, 648. The children of Bibai, 628. The children of Asgad, 2,322. The children of Adonikam, 667. The children of Vigvai, 2,067. The children of Adin, 655. The children of Atur of Hezekiah, 98. The children of Hashum, 328. The children of Bezai, 324. The children of Harif, 112. The children of Gibeon, 95. The children of Bethlehem and Netophah, 188. The men of Anathoth, 128. The men of Beth Asmaveth, 42. The men of Kiriath Jerim, uh, Kerfirah, and Beeroth, 743. The men of Ramah and Giba, 621. The men of Michmas, 122. The men of Bethel and Ai, 123. The men of the other Nebo, 52. The children of the other Elam, 1,254. The children of Harim, 320. The children of Jericho, 345. The children of Lod Hadid and Ano, 721. The children of Sena'a, 3,930. The priests, the children of Jediah of the house of Jeshua, 973. The children of Emir, 1,052. The children of Pashur, 1,247. The children of Harim, 1,017. The Levites, the children of Jeshua of Cadmiel, the children of Hed Hodeva, 74. The singers, the children of Asaph, 148. The gatekeepers, the children of Shalom, the children of Ater, the children of Talmon, the children of Akub, the children of Hatita, the children of Shobai, 138. 
the temple servants, the children of Ziha, the children of Hasufa, the children of Tabaoth, the children of Keras, the children of Sia, the children of Padan, the children of Labana, the children of Hagaba, the children of Salmai, the children of Hanan, the children of Gidal, the children of Gahar, the children of Reaya, the children of Rezan, the children of Nakoda, the children of Gazan, the children of Uza, the children of Pasea, the children of Besai, the children of Meonim, the children of Nefushashim, the children of Bakbuk, the children of Hakufa, the children of Harhu, the children of Basileth, the children of Mahida, the children of Harsha, the children of Barkas, the children of Sisra, the children of Tema, the children of Neziah, the children of Hatifa, the children of Solomon's servants. The children of Sotai, the children of Sophereth, the children of Perida, the children of Jala, the children of Darkon, the children of Gedal, the children of Shavataiah, the children of Hatil, the children of Pokeret Hezabaim, the children of Hamon of Ammon, all the temple servants and the children of Solomon's servants were 392. These were those who went up from Telmela, Telharsha, Kerub, Adon, and Immer, but they could not show their father's houses nor their offspring whether they were of Israel. The children of Deliah, the children of Tobiah, the children of Nakoda, 642. Of the priests, the children of Hobiah, the children of Hakaz, the children of Barzillai, who took the wife of the daughters of Barzillai the Gileadite and was named after their name, called after their name. These searched for their genealogical records, but couldn't find them. Therefore, they were deemed disqualified and removed from the priesthood. The governor told them not to eat of the most holy things until the priest stood up to minister with Urim and Thummim. The whole assembly together was 42,360, in addition to their male servants and their female servants, of whom there were 7,337. They had 245 singing men and singing women. Their horses were 736, their mules 245. Their camels, 435. Their donkeys, 6,720. Some, some from among the heads of fathers' households gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury 1,000 derricks of gold, 50 basins, and 530 priest garments. Some of the heads of the fathers' households gave into the treasury of the work 20,000 derricks of gold and 20,200 minus of silver. That which the rest of the people gave was 20,000 derricks of gold plus 2,000 minus of silver and 67 priests' garments. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their cities. When the seventh month had come, the children of Israel were in their cities. Phew. <laughs> uh, don't, you just don't you just love... <laughs> these lists of names. Uh, many of them are familiar, hopefully. You've been following the show. Uh, we've met them before. But let's begin with the beginning where what prompted, you know, the counting and the looking into these names. You know, Nehemiah's uh, wall, you know, it's been built and now he's thinking of security. You know, he's setting up the doors, he's stationing people at the gates and he puts uh, his, these two guys, Hananiah, Hananiah, to be in charge of the city. And he gives them the instructions, you know, you need to make sure the gates are essentially shut, only open them when there is daylight. In fact, very at the hot of the day, noon. Uh, only then will you then expose this gate and allow people to come in and out. But otherwise, you know, make sure that it's secure. And that's, that's the first bit. Um, 
you know, everyone had to do this. You know, every man, every family, every priest, even they had to be involved with the security. You are only as strong as your weakest link, that, that kind of idea. I'm not sure whether that's meant to be a principle, but that was the situation that they were in. They really needed to maintain the security of the wall. Uh, so when the city, you know, the city walls were built, then he started looking inside the city. And that's where verse 4 says, you know, this was a big space they, they, they secured with the wall. But there weren't that many people there. The people were few and the houses were not built. So um, there was not a lot of infrastructure and um, a lot of space, I guess. And I guess... Um, this then prompted verse 5 onwards. God motivated him to kind of like do a census to count who were the first people arrived in the first wave back from Babylon and to see how far that had come to the present, to see how much they populated the city. And I think that's the right thing to do. You know, you spend all this energy on a program, eventually it's meant to serve the people. You know, you don't just start another program or you just use the people to run that program. In the end, you know, it's creating a home for these people. And the starting point uh, was the first returnees from Babylon. And this is uh, back in Ezra when Ezra chapter 1, chapter 2, you know, uh, the people came back willingly from Babylon. And so there's this list that he kind of like dug up and he read back. And the reason why I say it should be familiar is because um, this kind of census, you know, see Parosh, Shephatiah, Pahath Moab. If you go to another passage, if you go to say Ezra and maybe chapter 2, chapter 2, chapter 2. Yeah, Parosh, Shephatiah, Pahath Moab. There you see, do you see, do you see the connection there? Uh, there's this list, and then you start going down here, pa Sheriff, pa Moab, and then you have this list of people that uh, go all the way down here. You have the priests and the children of Emer, the children of Pashur, um, Pash, yeah, children of Pashur, the priests, the Harim, the Levites. And so he's, he's essentially reading the same list that um, they compiled uh, many, many years ago with the first wave back. And that's why even with the, with the offerings, it's the same there. And he's just saying that this was the starting point of them repopulating the city. And again, the emphasis on people, you know, looking into their welfare. Uh, verse 4 talks about building houses. I think that was the next stage, just making a home for people again. Uh, the application here is, you know, programs are not meant to serve more programs. They're meant to serve uh, people. I was just listening to a sermon uh, from church about how we all need one another. We're all members of one another. We need one another the way that I need lungs. And that's a very heartfelt call for everyone to see how precious and how valuable and just that oneness of being that one body. That's the same here. Um, uh, Nehemiah being a godly leader, you know, his concern now is on the people. The whole point of building this program is for the people. And I think if uh, people see that, they'll get behind that. You know, you start a program, you start a mission kind of like uh, activity, you know, let's do this thing together. If it's ultimately for the good of the people, good, the good of the body, you know, people will get behind it. 
or even if at the moment you can't, you know, focus on the people, but they know that eventually you'll get to them. That's fine. That's okay. And that's how you foster trust. That's how, you know, you build credibility and how you exercise your responsibility with faithfulness. And here is then a uh, kind of acknowledgement that it's not just the people who are here, but the people who came before. That's why every single person here is read out again, is listed again in Nehemiah's book. This was quite a while ago when they turned back. But it's not just you, me, who are here right now. And that's a very temporal way of looking at things. But you see, we have this is because all these people came before. They were the ones who made it possible for us to continue this work. And I think that kind of acknowledgement, that kind of thankfulness, that kind of gratefulness is a very godly perspective that God you know, carry on, carries on the work, but he uses people, he uses godly people, and he uses faithfulness through generations and through you know, generations and generations of believers. Um, I think there is a connection there. You know, in, if you want to get everyone loving one another and serving together, um, there is a kind of momentum to doing that. If you've always been doing this, then you can just carry on doing it. But if you're just starting to do now, <laughs> you know, if all you're doing is one program after another, um, then, you know, at some point of time, you have to start thinking, you know, do I really love these people? Is my heart really for them? And here you can see that Nehemiah's heart was really for the welfare of the people whom he's just got to do this huge work of building, of protecting, of serving the city. You know, let's build up the people. Let's serve them. Cool. That's Nehemiah chapter 7. Ezra chapter, no, not Ezra. We're just looking at Ezra. Acts chapter 17. Excuse me. Huh. What do you guys think? You know, um, if you come from a big church, especially, that was one of the things uh, the pastor brought up. You know, it's hard to see the kind of New Testament love that Jesus calls for, the New Testament calls for, to love one another, to embrace one another. It's hard to do that in a big church context. Um, when I heard that, I was, I mean, to be honest, I was a little sad um, that, um, uh, that that's the kind of reality that we have, that the more we are blessed in terms of numbers, the harder it is to reflect that blessing in terms of love. I'm thankful that there is a kind of realization and there is a kind of uh, confession of that. And I think behind that is a resolve to try to reflect that love, you know, not, not just leave it at, at that. But, you know, what would you do to encourage a larger group of believers to be able to love one another? It's one thing if you're all living in the same house, you know, you're actually blood relatives, you actually see each other another, and therefore you're literally family. But if you're in a church family, um, and there are many families, and then you all want to love one another, how do you, how do, you do that? Um, I would suggest to you, um, Nehemiah models that. Um, you know, it, in his regard for the people as a whole, that helps the people to regard one another on a personal level. You know, not all of us will be able to have access 
to our pastors, to our leaders, because the larger it is, almost the further away they are. Kind of like if you're in a big church, you're further away from the stage. You can't get access to them. Or if you do, maybe it's that passing hello or that handshake on the way out. But everyone sees um, on display the relationships that the leaders themselves have. You know, you can see, you can sense how leaders among themselves relate to one another, how they relate to their own families. And for the few moments that you see them, whether on stage or on your live stream, you do see, get a sense of how close they are to God and how close they are to the people who are around them. And that then models to you how then you are meant to relate to your family members and your brothers and sisters. The thing about Nehemiah is that we see so many times the way that he prays to God, you know, that's transparent. The way that he relates to the other leaders, he points Hananiah, Hananiah says, I trust you guys, please, you know, look after this gate. You know, there's, it's not just you guys do this job. But I, says, I, I know these guys, he, his brothers. I'm not sure whether they're actually his blood brothers, but I think it's more that, you know, even if they are, you know, these are the guys I trust and that's why I'm giving them this responsibility. And then we see it in the last level where he's considering the welfare of the people. There is so much influence in terms of how leaders love their people that help people love one another. Not least Jesus, you know, Jesus having compassion again and again on the lost and the sick, sick, and that's why, you know, he heals them. Or that's why he says, you know, ask the Lord to harvest to send his workers into the harvest field. There is a correlation between how much you love as leaders, your people, that then almost influences your people to love one another. Um, honestly, I read Nehemiah and I'm very, very challenged in that respect. You know, a guy who isn't just doing the bare minimum in terms of getting the, the job done. You know, he's supposed to build the wall. The wall is done. But now he's thinking, how do I look after the welfare of the people? How do I rebuild and repopulate this? And it just doesn't just start with them. It starts with their predecessors. What was done before? What was the faithfulness shown then? What were the leaders doing then? And how can I continue on that work so that it's passed on and passed on and passed on? Yeah. Acts chapter 17. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. Paul, as was his custom, went in to them and for three Sabbath days reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, of the devout Greeks, a great multitude, and not a few of the chief women. But the unpersuaded Jews took along some wicked men from the marketplace and gathering a crowd, set the city in an uproar. Assaulting the house of Jason, they sought to bring them out to the people. When they did not find them, they dragged Jason and certain brothers before the rulers of the city, crying, these who've turned the world upside down have come here also, whom Jason has received. These all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. The multitude and the rulers of the city were troubled when they heard these things. When they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, 
Oh, here is written Barrow Air. <laughs> When they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, also of the prominent Greek women and not a few men. But when the Jews of Thessalonica had knowledge that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Beroea, also they came there likewise. Agitating the multitudes, then the brothers immediately sent out Paul to go as far as to the sea, and Silas and Timothy stay, stayed there. But those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, receiving a commandment to Silas and Timothy that they should come to him very quickly. They departed. Now, while while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him. As he saw the city full of idols, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who met him. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also were conversing with him. Some said, "What does this babbler want to say?" Others said, "He seems to be advocating foreign deities because he preached Jesus." And the resurrection, they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, "May we know what this new teaching is which you are speaking about? For you bring certain strange things to our ears. We want to know whether what these things mean." Now all the Athenians and the strangers living there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said. You men of Athens, I perceive that you are all—you are very religious in all things. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription: "To an unknown god." What therefore you worship in ignorance, I announce to you: the God who made the world and all things in it. He, being Lord of heaven and earth, doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. He isn't served by human men's hands, as though he needed anything, seeing he himself gives to all life and breath and all things. He made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the surface of the earth, having determined appointed seasons and the boundaries of their dwellings. That they should seek the Lord, if perhaps they might reach out for Him, and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us, for in Him we live, move, and have our being. As some of your own po poets have said, for we are also His offspring. Being then the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like. Gold or silver or stone, engraved by art and design of man, the times of ignorance therefore God overlooked, but now He commands that all people, everywhere, should repent, because He has appointed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness by the man who he, whom He has ordained, or which He has given assurance to all men. 
in that he has raised him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, "We want to hear you again concerning this." Thus, Paul went out from among them, but certain men joined with him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Hmm. Cool. So three locations. He starts out with, in Thessalonica, moves on to Berea, and ends up in Athens. In Thessalonica,、um, there's a riot, <laughs>、um, a huge riot actually, and they had to send him away. But when he goes to Berea,、uh, sorry,、um, Berea,、uh, the people there were a bit more receptive, and so he, they, anything that Paul said. They checked the Bible. Checked the Bible. They said,、oh, "Is it is it true? What did he say over there? Let's check which verse was that." And so, when they did believe, it was out of conviction from believing the scriptures. But what happens is that first place that he was in Thessalonica, the troublemakers there came to <laughs> came came to、uh, Berea, and then started causing problems there as well. Verse thirteen. They came there likewise, agitating the multitudes, and as a result, he has to jump ship. Not jump ship. He has to be sent away again. So Timothy and Silas stay in Berea, but Paul they they escort him out as far away as as they could go to the sea. But they ended up going to Athens, and that's how he ends up in Athens. He's actually running away for from it for his life. It wasn't planned. No, Paul didn't say, "Okay, I'm going to go to Athens. I'm going to evangelize in Athens. I'm going to bring the gospel to Athens." No, 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 no. They were chasing him around. They wanted to kill him, and therefore, this was kind of like one of the safe places they could deposit him until Timothy and Silas could catch up with him. Why do I say that? Because, well, Athens is like the place for philosophers. You know, Athens is. It has this place called the Areopagus, literally Mars Hill, and you know it's the place that says that where they always talk about these new ideas, new philosophies, new religious ideas. And you would think, aha, Paul, you know, this great speaker, this great philosopher, would want to go there and to debate his ideas and present the gospel. A lot of people make comparisons between. <laughs> A lot of people make comparison between Athens and Cambridge because Cambridge is a place of ideas, place of learning. Lots of philosophers here, and it's therefore you know we come to Cambridge, you know you are able to influence these influential people and then send them off into the world, and they're going to be great missionaries. They're going to bring the gospel to the end of the world. Paul did not do that. That's not the reason why Paul went to Athens. Paul was running away for his life, and he happened. Perhaps by God's providence, to go there and to present the gospel, and at the end we see that some people became Christians, including one person who was from this philosophy center called Morris Hill, called Areopagus. But what was Paul's impression when he first came into this great place of learning? His spirit was provoked as he saw the city full of idols. You know, I think sometimes you get very enamored. With a place like Cambridge, you know, this is a place of learning, but this is also a place of idols. I wonder, I wonder, you know, if someone like Paul came here, he would not be that impressed with all the smart PhD people going to the churches here. In fact, he might be kind of concerned and say, "Why are you guys worshiping all these things 
which you don't even know. Why? There are so many more idols here than other places that don't have so many PhDs. No wonder. And I think, I think that would be the case. It goes hand in hand, I'm sure. You know, lots of ideas, and therefore lots of debate, and therefore lots of opportunity, but also lots of idols, lots of people chasing after these idolatries. And lots of these debates have to do more with worldly ideas than it has to do with the gospel. We should be more troubled, or at least as troubled as Paul, if we are to be as motivated to preach the gospel in this Athens here in Cambridge. So anyway, what, what does Paul do? He is troubled, and they invite him to come and present his ideas in, uh, in this place called Areopagus, Ares, Mars, Pagos Hill, so uh, Mars Hill. And um, they think that he's preaching foreign deities because Paul was preaching about Jesus and the resurrection, Jesus and Anastasis. So they think that he's preaching two gods. That's why this is in plural, the foreign deities. And they think it's cool. You know, <laughs> they think it's cool for him to come and just share one more deity amongst all these deities that they, are, they already have in the city. And some of these philosophers are known as Epicurean, and some of them are Stoic. You know, think of them, if you watch Star Trek, you know, you think of uh, Kirk and Spock, you know, they're very diametrically opposed. You know, Spock is this very, very Stoic person. You know, he, he's always methodical, very logical. You know, he, he denies, you know, all the passions, but he's just thinking of di data. That's Stoic. And then the Epicurean is pursuing the passions, you know, very gung-ho and always, Captain Kerr is always taking out his shirts and fighting fighting some monster. That's So So it's a kind of range of different ideas. And they're asking, you know, where, where does Paul fit into this? In fact, they kind of look down on Paul, these two philosophers, because they call him a babbler. And this uh, this term babbler is the same term whereby you get, a, is the idea of a little bird pecking picking at seeds. That means Paul seems to be stringing together kind of random ideas. Some of it sounds familiar. All of it seems to be kind of random here and there. And they think that Paul is very unoriginal, but still interesting. And so they invite him to speak at the Areopagus. What does Paul say? Notice Paul speaks to them in a very accessible way. Remembering he was very troubled, you know, by idolatry. He doesn't say, you godless people, you guys need to, you, you guys are idiots, you know, you guys are so godless, you guys have angered God. He does build up to that. You know, he ends on the point of judgment, but he starts from where they are at. You know, he says, I perceive that you are all very religious. You know, I wonder um, if many people who would say that Paul is being very compromising here, you know, why are you, why are you compliment, complimenting them? Uh, would you say to a bunch of people, a mixture of Muslims, of Buddhists, of uh, atheists, you know, you're all very religious. You know, said, you know, what, you know, some what I'm saying was compromising himself or someone saying empty, empty vein kind of like compliments. But no, uh, Paul says he's building on kind of a general revelation. You know, there is a sense in which God still is kind of like, um, has already revealed part of himself. They see warped, they don't quite get a full picture, but Paul is trying to work with what they have. You know, he sees objects of worship and he finds this unknown God. So there is this sense that there is at least a God. 
a God whom they haven't yet encountered, whom they don't quite know, but they wish, you know, if only this God would identify Himself. He says, "I'm going to tell you who this God is," and it's a very bold thing to do, but still a very shrewd and a very, very attractive way. If you heard this, you know, here, here is someone who's saying, you know, let me tell you something that you've tried to look for all your lives, but you know, you haven't quite found it. You have that desire; it's reflected in all your worship, all your searching, and all your learning. But you know, why don't you consider this? It's a very, very shrewd, very gracious thing that Paul is doing here. And essentially, he talks about three things. Firstly, he talks about God, just just purely God. You know, the God, the God, the God. He, he, he. He's talking about God. God is essentially, you know, God. You know, He made the world. You didn't make Him. He He created you. You 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 can't create God by men's hands, by idols. You know, if God is God. Then, by definition, he is not a man; he is not man's creation, and he does not need anything from man. So that's the first thing we see. You know, he is the Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't live in a house, in a temple, and we can't do anything to serve God because he doesn't need anything. We need everything from God. He himself gives to all life, breath, and all things. So that's the first thing. God is God. But secondly, God created us to have a relationship with Him. He made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the surface of the earth, having determined the appointed seasons and boundaries of their dwellings. And it's saying that God created all men, all humanities, but also all. Kingdoms—that's the significance of these appointed seasons and the boundaries of their dwellings. He's, he's describing essentially nations. There's a parallel here with Daniel. You know, Daniel uses the same expression, and he does this so that they would seek him. You know, he's given everyone a sense that all this that's happening here is this created order that reflects the Creator, and he's given us this this sense that I I need to find out how this came to be. Why am I here? What is the meaning of life? What's the meaning of all these things that are happening in the world? It is so that we will seek God, and perhaps reach out to Him. And here's the good news: He's not far away from us. And so again, he goes back to the philosophers. You know, your own poets. You know, your own people have said we are His offspring, meaning we are not our own people. We've come from somewhere, from someone, from a God, and this God has made us. Therefore, we are His children. And we come from Him. We reflect Him. And therefore, you know, we should not think God like, you know, like I don't know what, like this, <laughs> like thing, a thing that we are investing God, Godhood into a thing like gold or silver or plastic. And he calls this essentially ignorant. You know, to do this is just silly. You know, and it's he's almost saying you know that it's silly. You know, you, how can it be that you're thinking of God like this? But then you express God like this. So that's the second thing. You know, God is God. God has made us to have a relationship for with Him. But lastly, God calls us to repent, to turn back to Him. And this is saying that, you know, we've turned our backs on Him, we've run away from Him, and that's the reason why we don't know Him. But now He commands that all people. Should repent, because verse thirty-one, he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man he has ordained. So God is one day going to judge you for running away from Him. 
this is, and therefore this kind of warning is given to you so that you will turn back and not be judged, so that you will not go on in this ignorance, but turn back to God in the knowledge of Him and have a relationship with Him. What is the motivation to do this? There is a day and a man and a judgment. He will. He has appointed a day, a judgment by a man. Who is this man? It is a man whom God has raised from the dead. Now, Paul stops there. <laughs> Imagine this. You know, this is not the usual, typical evangelistic talk that you have in a CU or in a church where you invite your friends and they talk about how God loves you. You know, God has a plan for you. You know, and therefore, you know, if you trust in Him, you have everlasting life. No, this is Him saying, "God is God." You need to turn back, otherwise Jesus, whom God has appointed, will come back as your judge. What kind? Of, what kind of good news is this? What it's saying is Jesus's resurrection, this raising from the dead, proves that He will come to judge the world, and that's the gospel. The gospel is, yes, good news that we will be saved from judgment, that God loves us and God has a plan for us. But the good news centers on Jesus, that God has appointed Him. God has given Him all His authority to rule and to judge and therefore to save. But first you have to explain that judgment. First you have to explain that it's Christ. And first you have to explain that God has appointed this person named Jesus. So when they heard about this resurrection, you know, some were saying, oh, that's silly. They mocked. But others said, you know, that sounds interesting. We want to hear more. And as a result, some of them became Christians. Now, what do we take from this? I think one thing that's very key in Paul's uh, preaching, uh, he'll, he'll do this with several other kings. He'll do this in several contexts is that Jesus' identity is affirmed by his being raised from the dead. And this raising from the dead is not just an excuse for us to say, oh, we're going to have eternal life. We're going to be raised together like him in newness of life. If anything, all, almost always, Paul talks about Jesus as being raised of the dead, is being raised in order to judge the living and the dead. And because, and you know, mark my, I mean, we'll see this again, and so I'll bring it up again. But, I'm mentioning it here because so that we're, we're getting ready for this. The next time, you know, you have an Easter sermon and you talk about Jesus raising from the dead, the next thing you talk about the resurrection, you read the Gospels. How often do we mention judgment? How do we often do we identify Jesus, therefore, as this judge? You know, for Paul, that is kind of like the Gospel because the Gospel announces that Jesus is this king who will rule and who will judge. And the evidence of that is the resurrection. Oftentimes we talk about evidence for resurrection as empty tomb, witnesses, and all that kind of thing. I don't think the Gospels really put it that way. You know, if anything, the Gospels and Acts say that the, the resurrection itself is an evidence that God will judge. We are so busy trying to prove the resurrection when God is saying, I've already proved the resurrection. By proving that Jesus rose from the dead means he really is the Christ, that he will come and he will rule and judge. And all I'm saying is that it is one step further 
from often where we go. We often go up to the point whereby, oh, Jesus rose from the dead. But Paul is concerned by saying, so what? So what, so what does it mean for Jesus to be risen from the dead? It means that you can't run from, away from him even though you die. <laughs> he will judge the living and the dead. That's Paul's point. And there's a, there's a question there and a call there to faithfulness. If you, were, if you call yourself someone who wants to preach the fullness of the gospel and the consistency of the gospel, again, we will see this again in Acts, that the resurrection is not just there to be proven as a thing for you to consider, therefore Jesus is the Christ, but the resurrection proves in itself that Jesus will come as the Christ to call us to give account for our lives, to call us to confess him as the Christ. Okay, so very, very heavy. Um, that's what happens when you split <laughs> the readings into two. You get two longer readings. Yeah. Um, okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I think this is just a sobering reminder of who we are praying to even right now. That Jesus who is risen, who is at your right hand, you know, he stands over us as our judge. And therefore, there's a kind of accountability that we have with our lives, an accountability of whom we trust with our lives, that because he's raised from the dead, he is our King, our Lord, and our judge. Help us to live each moment, each day in light of that, and help us as we proclaim the gospel, proclaim the message, to proclaim that fullness, that wholeness of that message of who he is and what he has come here to do, to bring judgment and to bring salvation as Christ, as Lord, and as Savior. We thank you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. See you tomorrow. Bye. <laughs>